Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Today's show is brought to you by OnPay, the new standard in payroll. You can pay employees and contractors in minutes, automate your payroll taxes and filings, as well as provide health benefits and HR in all 50 states. For more information, visit buildingthefutureshow.com slash onpay. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Esther Crawford. She's the CEO at Squad. Esther, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show as well. I, I think what you guys are doing at Squad is actually really innovative and cool. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, I grew up in a small town in Oregon called Corvallis um, okay. and was part of a very big, complicated family. And so when I left for college, um, I was 17 and basically haven't really lived in Oregon much since, um, yeah, since college. Interesting. So what did you take in, in college and why? Um, my bachelor's was in philosophy and okay. I really didn't have any idea exactly what I wanted to be. I just took a bunch of classes. I started my, my personal thesis was take classes that are innately interesting to you, Esther. And so that's what I did. And I just kept, and I kept taking classes that happened to be in, um, the philosophy, uh, department and in the psychology department. And ultimately, yeah, I ended up with a, with a bachelor's in philosophy and, then I went on to get my master's in international relations focused on Middle Eastern relations, um, which I did in the UK at a, at a school called Durham University. Very cool. So you, you get out of university, walk us through your journey. You went through uh, Y Combinator and, and up to uh, Squad. Do you want to talk us through that? Sure. It's <laughs> I feel like so many um, founders have this really simple story to be able to say like, oh, I went to Stanford and then I had this <laughs> idea and I launched it and I raised some money and it was all, it's all so straightforward. Um, I, that is not my path whatsoever. It's been uh -huh. all right. a very um, roundabout journey to get to where I'm at today, but everything has sort of piled on each other in a, in a way that led me here. So um, when I was in high school, I was part of a very conservative um, church group and we didn't watch television, go to movies. I only wore dresses. It was like, it's a whole oh, thing. Interesting. <laughs> um, okay. Interesting. There are all these rules, but the internet was still pretty early. It was like the late nineties. I was gifted a computer and I got on AOL chat rooms and I started spending okay. all of this time chatting and hanging out with people virtually. And that is what kind of changed the trajectory of my, of my life and ultimately my career. Um, so while I was in college, I continued to maintain relationships in online communities. I became an, a fairly popular early blogger on a site called Zanga. And then when I was in grad school, I was an early YouTuber. So there was oh, the year that I was in 
in England in grad school. Um, that's when YouTube launched. And because I'd been blogging, I thought, oh, video would be like, you know, hosting free video hosting was like a big deal and I'd been doing it myself. And so that's how I ended up joining YouTube so early. Um, I built an audience on YouTube and then after grad school basically realized that everything I'd been studying um, was not going to take me in the, in the direction um, that I was going to go with my career. And so I started um, an agency and my first client was Weight Watchers. I had a big sponsorship wow. deal with them um, as a result of my success on YouTube and then started basically working with big brands to help them understand uh, the future of video, social video platforms, influencer marketing. So I was really a pioneer in that space and did that for about five years and then moved to San Francisco. I did all of that from, um, I followed a, followed a boy to the Midwest. So that's where I lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin by then. Um, and then we were there for many years and um, I started to get a sense that, oh, you know, all of the all of the platforms I'm marketing on top of, AKA YouTube and then like early days MySpace and then later in sure. Instagram and all these places, I was like, well, all of that is being built in Silicon Valley. And I didn't have any connection to tech or to venture capital or, capital or any of that, but I just started doing a ton of reading. And again, like I'm somebody who just follows my passions. And so I became really interested and passionate about the product side instead of just the marketing side. And that led to kind of a leap of faith to moving to San Francisco. And so eight years ago, packed up, moved to San Francisco and was like, I know someday I want to build a social company. Um, but first I want to understand the industry I'm building it inside of. And so joined, um, in product marketing roles at a couple of venture backed startups. The first one I worked at was this Andreessen backed company called circle. Um, it was like a no, social right. local mobile, um, yeah. app and I worked with them for a little bit. Um, and then anyways, I, I then went on to coach.me, which, um, had spun out of Ev Williams, Ev Williams's obvious corporation. And it was a habit tracking app. Um, that was a social community. So all of that to say my entire career has basically been in consumer social. It's my passion. Um, it really changed my life and opened the world up to me and built all of these relationships that have become so, um, so meaningful. And so the, the origin of squad really kind of comes out of that experience of having spent so long as a consumer and also, um, as a marketer on those platforms. Very cool. So how did you actually come up with the idea for Squad and what made you actually decide to go for it and build Squad? So the original idea for, for Squad came from my daughter, Emma. She was um, complaining about the fact that she was on a FaceTime call, a video chat with her, with her friend across town, and they were having to leave the video chat and send each other um, you know, via text links and screenshots to the things that they were looking at together. And I was oh, like, right. yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like such an obvious problem. Like, yeah, it's yeah. really hard to hang out together, see each other, talk to each other, um, and then also see something else and have a shared experience. And so that was the initial kind of kernel of the idea. And then we built a prototype um, and ultimately said, yeah, let's just like go all in on this idea. And so that 
led to us launching squad in 2019 early 2018 so very cool so how did you get the first version built did you self-fund did you raise a little bit of money walk us through getting that prototype and then the first version built yeah so squad actually had come out of a pivot from an earlier product we had um, my co-founder ethan and i had started the company actually two years earlier and we okay um had been working on a social product but it was a different idea and we worked on that for two years and went through Y Combinator with that idea. And we'd raised by then about $2 million. Um, oh, wow. But because we'd stayed super lean, we hadn't hired a big team. We hadn't went, got, went and got an office space. Like we were just really conservative with how we spent the money we raised sort of with That's the smart. philosophy. <laughs> yeah. With the philosophy, like what if this is the only money we raise? Like it, can this get us to where we need to go? Um, and so when we were struggling to find any measure of product market fit um, and realizing that some of our underlying assumptions with the previous product um, weren't kind of panning out, that we had space to sort of reflect and think of other ideas. And so in that time period where we were, weren't sure what exactly to do next, that's when the conversation with Emma occurred. So we you know, already had some funding that enabled us to launch squad without us feeling, you know, like we were in a struggle, but I will say that the decision to pivot the company was very difficult emotionally and psychologically sure. because, you know, we had told all these investors, Hey, this is what we're building. And this is what we're super excited about for the future of social. And then our idea wasn't working. Um, not well enough to say, yes, let's like spend the next 18 months working on this. And so, yeah, so that was definitely a, a struggle, but like big kudos to my co-founder for being willing to jump in to something else and, you know, make that transition. I think a lot of, um, a lot of founding teams, these moments of indecision or decision that change the trajectory of your company can either really bring you together or tear you apart. And yeah, it's good advice. <laughs> yeah. And so like, I think in our case, it was actually something that brought us so much closer together. Um, and it wasn't obvious either. Like he took a leap of faith to say, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure this is the right choice, but um, like, let's go for it. And I'm going to do my very best to build an amazing product. And, you know, I'm going to trust your decision here. And like, I give him a ton of credit for that because, um, had there been strife or difficulty in coming to a decision, it would have, I think made squad not work, but instead we really partnered together and at every point along the way, he always makes, um, you know, it better and more interesting on the product side. And so I feel like we've been a really good, a really good team on that front. No, that, that's awesome. And how did you bridge that call with, or, or that meeting with investors when you, you had to tell them you were going to basically pivot because like, like obviously you're trying to take their money to build something new, right? Like how did you have that call? Yeah, I mean, so some of our investors, I think one of the things when you are a first time venture backed founder, like I'd started other companies before, but they were, um, you know, the agency model is you get paid for the work that you do. But the venture capital model is you convince right. people 
to invest in you in order to go build something. Um, yeah, fair. And so, you know, being a first time venture back founder, I was really nervous and there's a, a big spectrum of relationships. So some of my investors, I, uh, would talk to frequently and some of them I would talk to really infrequently. And so, um, the kinds of conversations around the pivot were different based on the level of relationship that I had with them. Got you. So, yeah, I think that's pretty normal. Um, and to, you know, the credit credit of our investors, um, many of them, not only were they instantly, you know, excited and, um, you know, believing in us, they also like doubled down on their investment once we launched squad and said, Hey, this is so great that we actually want to give you more money because we believe in what you're doing even more than that's amazing. Yeah. So that's like a really, I think like one investor I'll call out specifically who did that, um, was Alexia Benastis, um, before, we had even asked to go fundraise again, you know, she reached out to me and was like, I love what you're, you know, I love what you're doing. And she was really involved in, um, in the early launch of squad and she was just promoting the heck out of it and helping me so much and was like, Hey, can I, you know, can I invest more? And as a, as a founder, having an investor come to me who, um, has been on that journey, seeing the ups and downs, the good and the bad, um, say like, I believe even more in you was really um, a really beautiful experience. So no, that's, that's really great. So what exactly is squad today? And how has it kind of evolved over the last little while? Because you guys just uh, had a, a big launch of uh, a new medium. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, so squad at its core, our mission is really around reducing loneliness and increasing human connection. Um, the way that we do that is by allowing people to video chat and have shared experiences. So things like watching your favorite Netflix show together, catching up on TikToks or watching YouTube videos. We really focused initially on the um, content vertical because we were seeing when we started with screen sharing that people were trying to co-watch videos together. And so that is still the number one use case of squad. And so that's what we've really uh, doubled down on over the past year. You know, from my vantage point, if you want to build real meaningful relationships, there's no shortcut to it. It's like, you need to spend time together and do things together. Like that is actually what relationship building requires. And so that's what squad enables you to do when you're not physically together. Obviously, sure. obviously the timing of that now is like <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. pretty perfect. Um, and so we've obviously seen like a surge in usage and growth. Um, before coronavirus, we had decided, hey, you know what? Like when looking at the range of options for the platforms we were building on, which initially um, it was iOS and Android, we started taking a closer look at the desktop web experience and saying to ourselves like, you know, we watch people have these long sessions on squad where um, they're spending an hour plus on calls with their friends and, you know, in these video rooms. And we were like, holding your phone up for that duration is really pretty, like, that's a sure. big commitment. Um, yep. And watching longer form content is something that isn't really ideal on a small screen. And so um, we decided to build this desktop, desktop web version. And again, just like really great timing because 
here we are in a moment in time where for the last 12 years of social, everything has been about moving to mobile and having like yeah. an amazing mobile experience. And now for the first time, we're seeing this transition back to web where if you look at time spent on so many of the biggest platforms, the mobile time is declining or flat and time on desktop web is increasing dramatically. And so, um, you know, that extra screen real estate really comes in handy in the case of co-watching content together. And so we just launched that um, about a week and a half ago. That's very cool. And, and congrats on that. It's, it's cool to basically build stuff based on your hypothesis. It ends up being correct and almost riding those trends a bit too, right? Because desktop usage is up. Sure, it's for an awful reason right now. And, but I also think that once you get used to using something in a certain medium, sometimes going back to a, a smaller screen, depending on, to your point, what you're watching, you might always go to the laptop or the tablet, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that they're, they are complementary use cases and you choose the screen dependent on the kind of use case that you're going for. So I will say one thing that really surprised me in our early beta test of the desktop web experience was how many people actually, just super average consumers, not tech people, were connecting their laptop to their TVs to co-watch movies together. And so it was this really interesting learning internally to see, oh wow, totally average people cast their laptop to their TV all of the time to watch shows. Um, and so that was like another piece that we had to take into account. Like, okay, so if the view is actually your living room and my living room on screen, and then we're watching a, a movie together, like how do we better optimize that? And so that challenged us, um, you know, as we were getting closer to launch, we're like, oh, well, we probably need some kind of a theater mode. And so we fast followed about a week later after launching um, with a theater mode. So these are all the things that we continue to learn from, from doing and putting it out into the world. No, that's that's really great. You you brought up a few things there that I kind of want to dive a little bit deeper on. You you mentioned obviously you did user research. So how did you find the people for that? Were they current users? Were they not current users? Were they a bit of both? And then I guess a follow up to that is how did you actually get that feedback that a lot of them plug their laptop into the TV? Yeah, so we did a couple of things. One. Um, we found users through Craigslist um, to okay. like beta test with. We we weren't actually going into our current user base to get okay. um, testers. We wanted to really have them experience Squad through fresh eyes. Uh, smart. And so we found people on Craigslist. We found people. Um, we started to like see TikTokers posting about us, and so we reached out to some of them and said, "Hey." you know, um, it seems like you're interested in what we're doing. We're kind of coming out with a new platform. What do you think? Um, trying to get their perspective as a content creator, because in the case of content creators, often what they're looking for is a way of interacting with their audience in new and interesting ways. And having shared experiences could be one of those new ways. Um, and then we just like opened it up to our friends and family. And so for me, um, that was the first place that I saw the TVs being connected that was actually my family, which are 
these are totally non-techie people and then started hearing other people having the same experience and I was just like oh this is so interesting um it's not something I personally do but when I was like in college I did do it um so yeah it was just a combination of of um finding users to test it in different from different venues no that's that's really good advice the the other thing you mentioned so that I I don't know if people picked up on is like you rolled out a version like and then a week later you rolled out like a <laughs> I don't know like a, a another version yeah. to that right like and the point I'm trying to make is so many people say like we need to roll out version one and then three months later version 1.5 or, or whatever the number yeah. is it doesn't even really matter but like I don't I've been a big believer of you can roll out version one today and then tomorrow version two could roll out or three days from now. It doesn't have to be yeah. these huge gaps. And like, I think it doesn't make sense to hold back a feature even a week or sorry, a rollout, even a week just to add one feature. It's like roll it out and then add it later. And obviously you must share that. And it seems like you, you can get stuff iterated, iterating a lot faster by doing that. Or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, 100%. I think, um, you know, there's like consensus on our team that speed wins <laughs> because sure. it's what helps us learn. Um, if we are too precious and we polish things too much, um, or we think we like, you know, work through every use case and edge case, um, then we're going to miss something that like we could never have thought of. And so right. we definitely err on the side of, pushing things out, being uncomfortable with it, being a bit embarrassed by it, like having to fast follow to fix things or, you know, we, we, we always think what's the very bare minimum that we can um, launch this with. And I would say like, I give a lot of credit to my co-founder, Ethan, who that is just like his default setting. In fact, right. it's more, he goes further than I do. Like he would, <laughs> he would launch things like faster than I would. But regardless, I think like the combined sensibility of like, let's make sure there it's usable. Um, and also let's make sure that we do it as fast as possible makes us like a team that ships relentlessly. And one of our um, investors, Michael Seibel, who's the CEO of Y Combinator, like remarked during our time at YC was just like, you guys were shipping insanely fast. Like that's awesome. And that's just like something we take a lot of pride in. So sure. And I think just as somebody that's been actually in the trenches building a startup, nothing motivates people and a team when they have something live that users are using that they're embarrassed by. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like we need to fix this. We need to fix this. Cause like sometimes bike bugs can sit for months, right? Because it's like well, nobody's really seeing that. It's like one person reported it and, and maybe so, but like if a bunch of people are using it, people want to fix it right away. Right. So that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that if you, if you are too, um, navel gazing, you can actually completely miss the opportunity. And there are a million examples of teams that spent a really long time um, or a lot of money and a, took a lot of people to build something that looks great on launch day, but nobody uses. Um, totally. And so, yeah, we don't want to be that team. <laughs> no, fair enough. But, but it's also good 
to have that mindset too, right? And, and learn from other people's past mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm curious, obviously you guys figured out um, you want to do this web thing, but how do you guys balance feature requests from users and, and your roadmap? Because obviously you can't really chase your tail and, and roll out every feature that gets requested, but what do you decide to, to actually implement that a user gives you and how do you fit that into your current roadmap? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one, honestly, because there's no perfect solution. And sure. I know that there are plenty of frameworks that teams use to um, make product level decisions. And I would say we've attempted some of the, that you know, using those flows before, and they can be helpful when you're stuck on um, making a decision. But for the most part, I would say um, we look at it from the perspective of how many people will this potentially impact and what's the level of effort. And it's just on those two spectrums for us at this point. If it's something that has a, you know, high impact, but it's like low effort, we should probably, you know, and it also impacts a number of users, we should probably prioritize that. Um, but if it's, if that's not true, even if it's something we think is really cool, um, we will put it on the backlog. And honestly, it's frustrating to have so many things on the backlog, but when we're a team this small, there are nine of us on the team, um, we just, absolutely have to relentlessly focus our efforts and do one thing at a time. And we're working across three platforms, iOS, Android, and the web. Um, so it's just, uh, it's like an That's intense uh, level of constant sprinting in order to get um, new features out. And it kind of at the end of the day does come down to like gut instinct. Like there's nobody that's going to tell us the right answer. And there's, there's no like amount of user research research um, that's going to say, this is the one to do. But I think the combined, the, the combined minds of our whole team looking at it and feeling it out um, is ultimately kind of what leads to these decisions. And so great ideas come from all over the place. They come from, I, from users like my daughter, they come from, um, you know, engineers on our team who are just like hacking on their own on the weekends. Um, they come from Paul who runs um, user research and customer support on our team. Um, they come from Maria who runs marketing. Like they really do come from everybody. And then it's really a matter of just prioritizing them. And ultimately that's kind of my job and that's difficult to sometimes do and there's no easy answer to it. So it's, I would say sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. <laughs> no, but it's, I'm glad that you're openly talking about how challenging it can be. And, and sometimes you're right. And sometimes you're wrong. Like I, I love the, when founders and, and CEOs are openly telling like, not every time we get it hundred percent. Right. Right. I, I think that's really good advice. So you've raised money from some really big name people and, and you raised venture capital just by itself, what advice do you give people when raising money, especially in the in the early stages? It's a it's a tough one because I I would say venture capital is a people based business, 
And sure. so at the end of the day for early stage investing, they are investing in the team. Obviously they have to care about the idea and they have to believe that the um, total addressable market is huge. And they, there's like these certain prerequisites um, that are there, but, but ultimately they are investing in the founding team and they have to believe that you are the right person to build this product or the right the right team to um you know be able to persevere in the face of like absolute like <laughs> tiny odds of success and so i think like that's the first thing is like knowing that means you make decisions in the lead up to fundraising that um might look like living in a spot where there's access to more capital. I know that's not what people like to hear often because it feels like, ah, oh, you know, I should be able to live in Oklahoma if I want and be able to raise capital. But the reality is it's a lot harder if you're not able to build those relationships. Um, what's cool is actually what's going on with coronavirus means it levels the playing field a little bit more by allowing sure. people to be able to start to build more of those relationships virtually by hanging out um, on, you know, in like virtual events. But the reality is I think you really do need to get to know people. Um, and the earlier you can do that before starting a company, the better it is for you. Um, I would say like the other thing it kind of comes down to is like perseverance, you're going to get so many no's and nobody knows how to fundraise at the beginning. Like nobody, I was horrible at it. Um, I am embarrassed when I think back to some of the early pitches that I made and I, there've been like moments where I've, you know, years later saw that investor again and was like, Hey, I just want to recognize that the first time I met you, I was really bad. <laughs> Thank you for bearing with me at that. Um, so I think it's just, a, awesome, yeah, I think it's just a practice thing and having a mentor or mentors who have done it before is invaluable. Like don't, you know, if you want to raise venture capital, do not just read essays online, medium posts and think like you're going to get it right. It's like, no, you really need to talk to people who've done it and learn from them. And so um, I was really lucky to have some friends and people in my extended network who had raised venture capital before. And so in, you know, at various points along the way, I've had to call them and text them and be like, I don't understand what's happening or like, what does this really mean? Or what should I do next? Um, and so that kind of mentorship is really, really invaluable. And what's awesome about the tech industry is I feel like it's a friendly place. People actually want to see new people come in and succeed. They root each other on, even in, um, you know, this tiny world of venture backed consumer social companies, there are probably like a dozen of us. There are just very, very few in this particular space. And we all know each other We're I, I root every single one of them on even ones that like other people might consider competitors, because I think it's like really amazing just to see other people trying to build cool shit. And who am I to not want, you know, to say like good, good work when you do good work. Um, so that's actually really good advice. And, and the interesting thing about that, that I think probably you would agree with, and you can tell me in a second if you do or not, 
is you never know where those connections will come in. Sure, they might be competition, but you might buy one in the other one at some point, or they might buy you, you might merge. Like there's a million ways that it could play out, right? And yeah. so it, in, like a lot of investors will even tell you, start building relationships with companies that you could potentially buy or they could potentially buy you. And sure, you might be competitors, but you just never know. Yeah, I, I think that at the end of the day, like I want to um, be really proud of what we've done and also sure. how we've done it. And so sure. I'm pretty savage. I'm not going to say that I'm not like I want to win, but I sure. also want to do it feeling good about myself. And I think that that is totally possible um, to do. And <laughs> so, yeah, I'm I feel really excited by the fact that people are building in the space. Um, I think it's a sign of, hey, wow, we're doing something right here. Um, if we're the only people in town doing something, then, you know, it's maybe not likely to be something that very many people care about. No, you're, it, it's a hundred percent correct. Right. It, it's like, there's clearly a market there if there's many people in, in that space. Yeah. Very cool. So I'm curious, do you have any advice for founders or other entrepreneurs outside of um, investment advice that you wish you, you could tell your younger self? I guess I feel like for myself personally, a lot just came down to developing my own confidence in my story yeah. and in my um, ability to be my authentic self. I think there's a lot of pressure to conform to some vision that you think investors or your industry wants you to be. And if you're somebody, maybe because you're a woman or a minority, or you just don't fit the mold in some way, like you didn't, you don't have an Ivy League education, or I don't know, there are a million different things people can have insecurities about. Um, sure. I think that for me, it was like, the first job I needed to do was to tackle my own self and my own, get over my own story that would hold me back. And so I think for a lot of founders, when I, early stage founders, they reach out to me and they're, they'll say, oh my God, Esther, you've raised $7 million. You have first round as your lead investor. Like you have this all, you know, like rock star set of investors, Halogen Ventures, BBG, all these amazing people. Like, how did you do it? And honestly, the truth is like one day at a time, like one moment of failure, but getting myself back up to like, you know, face the next day and work to succeed even harder. Um, it was like just a series of steps like that. And, and I think that's true for, for anybody, no matter how successful they get you, you will always feel inadequate to somebody else's success if you're comparing sure. yourself. Um, and so the first step is really like having confidence that what you're doing matters and that you're capable of achieving the goal that you want to achieve, even if it seems crazy and seems totally um, unlikely. Like you have to believe in yourself if you want anyone else to believe in, in you. And that's often, I think, the hardest 
hurdle. Um, and even, you know, I've seen plenty of founders who are much further along, but who struggle so deeply um, with that. And, you know, that can lead to burnout or um, just like inc incredible, like mental anguish. And so I feel like that's like the biggest piece of advice I have often for early stage founders is just like find ways to take care of your own mental health in this journey and to continue to like find ways of building yourself up because you are going to be, you are going to be forced to consistently um, run through brick walls. <laughs> and, no, and some 100%. of those walls really hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's actually really good advice because it, you're going to hear way more no's or that's not going to happen yeah. than you are yeses. And like, it might take you literally a thousand times yeah. and, and I'm not joking. Like I mean actually a thousand times and it might take you two years yep. to get those a thousand try times. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and is most people, the moment they launch uh, their product or some feature very rarely is that like a success overnight, you know, it's like, even the biggest, most successful products, like they were iterations on other things that the founders had been working on for months or years. Um, and so it's, it's not like if you, if it doesn't work instantly that it won't ever work, but you have to have a kind of mental fortitude <laughs> that is um, sometimes feels a little superhuman. But I feel like that is the kind of work that um, will prepare you to actually be um, a startup founder. No, I 100% I agree with you, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and Squad? Yeah, so um, you can find Squad at squadapp.io. We are on iOS. Um, we've got the desktop web and we have a, an Android version in beta. It's like in what's considered early access in the Play Store. And um, we are at Squad on Twitter and Instagram. We're on TikTok, um, <laughs> lots of places. Um, I myself am at Esther Crawford on Twitter and you can tweet at me if you have any questions or DM me if you, if you want some follow-up. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.